0: make a statement, or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com.
2: Dobri This is Yuri from Breckenridge, Colorado. You're listening to the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with Rob Snow White. Produced by producer Jason Спасибо. what is podcasting? The radio show. Oh. All right, so today, the first podcast of the year, we have debbie Hansen, you want to introduce yourself?
3: Absolutely. Hey, everybody out there in podcast land. This is Debbie Hansen and I am a freshwater fishing guide and fly angler. So I'm excited to be here chatting with Rob today, talking a little bit about fishing, fly fishing down here in Florida, and also how we can get more women involved in the sport.
2: Absolutely. All right. So you're in Florida now. Where in Florida are you?
3: I am in Southwest Florida, so I am right in between Fort Myers and Naples, if you're familiar with that area.
2: So you live in vacation land?
3: Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. It it doesn't stink living here, let me just say that.
2: I just had the car windows open for the first time in three weeks up here in D.C. Oh my
3: goodness. Yeah, Yeah, because you guys had a cold snap up there. I mean, we had a cold snap down here, and everyone was complaining. And of course, being from Chicago... I always kind of roll my eyes and I'm thinking to myself, please, people. (laughs) Florida's cold snap is nothing compared to what Midwesterners and you guys deal with up there.
2: However, we did not have iguanas falling out of trees.
3: Okay, that's true.
2: Did you get to see that at all?
3: That is true. Um, I did not, but we do actually have iguanas down in Naples. So there's the Golden Gate Canal system, which is an area I fish from time to time for exotic species like peacock bass and cichlids i've seen them down there when i've been fishing that area so uh i have not seen them fall out of trees but i have seen them they can swim pretty fast i might add too
2: do they ever chase flies or are they just going from point a to point b
3: basically just from point a to point b
2: do you ever see animals try to eat them
3: i haven't seen that yet
2: no i I just passed a new pond down the street by the church and there's all these geese that showed up. I was like, wow, it'd be nice to have some crocodiles in there to eat all those darn geese. <laughs> make,
3: make right. Scissors. Well, yeah. And that's the thing down here that could easily happen because I'm sure if there were, a gator was hungry enough an iguana might make, you know, a, a pretty good afternoon snack. That would work.
2: Awesome. I heard they taste like chicken. <laughs> all right. So, yeah, you yeah, you, uh, you grew up in Chicago. How long I were you did. there?
3: I lived up there, um, until 1999. So how I got into fishing living in Chicago, I mean, Chicago obviously has some great urban fishing opportunities right around, you know, Lake Michigan, downtown Chicago, that area. But, um, so when I was knee high to a grasshopper, about four years old, both my parents worked full time and every single summer, mom and dad sent me off with my grandparents and grandma and grandpa had a lake house in the upper peninsula of Michigan, which was about an eight hour drive from Chicago. And if anyone out there has ever been to the upper peninsula of Michigan, you know how beautiful it is up there. So it's like silver birch trees, beautiful rolling hills, all kinds of glacial lakes, just stunning. So my grandfather just, you know, never questioned it, never. It was just, all right, Debbie, you're my fishing buddy. You're going out fishing with me. And every summer I was in the boat with him. So that's how I got involved with fishing and how my passion ignited, basically.
2: That's the opposite of my grandpa. He'd have us making martinis at breakfast.
3: <laughs> oh, goodness.
2: Yeah. All right. So uh, Trent Jones, the fishing manager of the Bethesda Orbis, he tells me that Michigan is the greatest state in the union, and I'll try to argue, but he is—he is from Michigan. Uh, but yeah, I've been up there once. It's—it's it's pretty amazing. They've got every kind of outdoor activity you can want.
3: Yeah, and I mean they're diehard about it in the summer because you know, listen, in the winter time, unless you're into ice fishing or snowmobiling, you're not doing a whole lot outside. Absolutely. <laughs> But it it was, it was a beautiful place to spend my summers growing up and, you know, the serenity of being on those lakes and catching bluegill, walleye, musky, perch, just, you know, those were the best memories made with my grandfather and I'll always cherish those memories. So very important. I think that's one of the reasons why it's, it's really important for us. And I know Rob, you've got, you've got a daughter, right? Absolutely. To, to get our kids involved in fishing because you know studies have shown that if kids get involved at a young age they're much more likely to to stick with it and you know we'll retain them in the sport for many years to come if they start early
2: yeah i got my daughter a sleeping bag for hanukkah and i'm gonna have to get her her own tying tools because every day she asks me to tie something and she said no more woolly buggers I was like all right so she's getting more <laughs> interested
3: yeah, and she wants she wants to know about some other patterns, right? Yeah,
2: and she's inviting her friends already uh, out on the boat for the summer. She's looking Love ahead. it, yeah.
3: Love it. She's going to create a bunch of a, a new generation of little lady anglers. That's awesome.
2: Right. Put down those American girl dolls and pick up fly rods.
3: Amen.
2: Yeah. So, I'm what awesome. brought you to Florida?
3: So, I vacationed in Florida when I was young. My parents used to bring me down to Disneyland and we came down to the beaches of southwest florida on vacation and and then i actually i got engaged to a gentleman who was getting ready to buy a marina go into the marina business with his father so i moved down with him and bummer the relationship didn't work out but oh, i bro. stayed here <laughs> i stayed here anyway just because i fell in love with you know just the Florida lifestyle and being able to enjoy outdoor activities year round. And of course, you know, most importantly, fishing. Um, And when I first moved down, of course, saltwater fishing was a whole new game for me. And it was so exciting just to learn everything about saltwater fishing and all the different species that you could have the opportunity to catch down here in this area.
2: Did you have any mentors other than your grandfather?
3: You know, uh, actually recently, um, well, with I would say within the past 10 years, I met a gentleman um, not long after I moved down to Florida. I originally was in the advertising business and I worked for an agency up in Chicago. And then when I moved down here, there was only one tiny little advertising agency in Southwest Florida. And it just so happened that I was doing some work with a gentleman who was an illustrator who also liked to fish and his name was Mr. Joe Mahler. And he had kind of specialized, he he was very much into fly fishing and kind of created a, a niche for himself doing illustrations for publications like Saltwater Sportsman and FLW magazine, among some of the others. And so um we met and connected and of course always talked about fishing and he knew I loved to fish, but I really hadn't done a whole lot of fly fishing. So um, probably, gosh, it's probably been about five or six years now. He introduced me to fly fishing and got me involved in it. And I, I dabbled around for, with it a little bit for a while. And then he was like, you know, what? if you're really serious about this and, you know, you want to challenge yourself and, and take your your skills to the next level, you need to put down that spinning rod and put down that bait caster and, you know, exclusively use your fly rod for six to eight months. So that's exactly what I did. And, and I cannot thank him enough because I am, I'm addicted and I love it. I mean, fly fishing is just, you know, it's about so much more than fishing. It's, it's feeling that lot, that rod load properly. It's, matching the hatch. I mean, there's so many different aspects to it and you're always learning just like any other, you know, aspect of fishing. There's just so much that you can learn and so much to know. And that's the best part about it. You're always growing.
2: Yeah. Every day there's something new out there that I learn and it's all encompassing. It never ends. Once you think you figured something out, mother nature and the fish just throw something else at you.
3: Absolutely. I mean, for example, when we were fishing up in DC, when I met you in person for the first time, I had never fished a dropper rig. So that was something new and different.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that definitely helps, especially in that tidal basin. I wish I had more time, but like I said, those kids, they uh they've got these schedules you gotta deal with. So I had to yeah. leave early. And then I missed a huge bass right on my walk out. I was driving uh, something big and it chased it and That was a fun day with Gabby. That weather was perfect.
3: Yeah, it was. It was so nice to get up there and experience that fall weather again, because that's the one season being down here in Florida that I have to say I do miss, for sure.
2: Do they do pumpkin spice flavored everything down there in the fall?
3: You know, they still do. And I think a lot of it is because (laughs) there's so many Midwesterners in this part of Southwest Florida that... You know, that's what they're familiar with. And yeah, so it is. It's pumpkin spice everything.
2: They Florida, 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 Florida. Florida I don't know how to say the word, but do they make like pumpkin spice confritters or pumpkin spice margaritas just to keep it Florida?
3: No, thank goodness. And
2: another they food don't. rule being from Chicago, your thoughts on ketchup on hot dogs.
3: Ketchup on hot dogs. Well, yeah. Oh, ketchup- okay. Yeah, they go together. No, uh, you don't do ketchup on hot dogs?
2: You know, uh, Barack Obama, that was his big thing when he he went there with I forget who it was, Bourdain maybe, and they were, they had a big discussion about Chicago people only put mustard on dogs.
3: Yeah, I don't know. I do I have to say I do ketchup on my hot dogs. I mean, they yeah, I mean Chicago people like to do a lot of, you know, relish. They do the a lot of them do the works. And of course Chicago's there. Chicago's Italian beef is kind of a big deal and their pizza is kind of a big deal, but yeah,
2: well, you got to go. We're not known for much in DC. We have something called a half smoke. That's about it. Mumbo sauce too. mumbo sauce. What's mumbo sauce. It's a combination of like a hot sauce and a sweet and sour, like tangy sauce. And you traditionally get it with wings, but we put it on everything in here. I'll, I'll put it on Ritz crackers. Uh, Put putting it on roasted cauliflower the other night. I'm going to have to get you a bottle. I mentioned it to Conway Bowman once. He's like, yeah, I don't want mumbo sauce either. It's a DC thing.
3: I guess. Yeah. So. Well, next time I come up, I'll have to scout it out.
2: Absolutely. All right. So when did you go from advertising to She Fishes too? When did that occur?
3: That was probably about nine years ago. So I started a blog. Which is now she fishes too. She fishes in the number two dot com. And, you know, I just basically started documenting my weekend fishing adventures. And I also wanted to create a forum or a specific place where women could go online to learn more about fishing. If they wanted to figure out what they needed to get to buy in terms of a basic, you know, freshwater rod and reel setup. Um, I included posts along those lines, just, you know, educational posts about different places in Southwest Florida where you could fish just because I realized that there were so many women who really wanted to get out there and learn, but, you know, maybe they didn't have a significant other that fished or, you know, they were a little bit intimidated about asking too many questions. Um so I thought I'm going to start this blog and see where it goes and I kept up with it and then one of the um contacts at takemefishing.org happened to see my blog and sent an email and said we have a request for a proposal that we're putting out and we're interested in having a female voice on our blog at takemefishing.org if you would be interested in sending us a proposal And, of course, I was like, absolutely, I will submit a proposal. And, um, you know, from there, Rob, things really, really took off. So I'm extremely grateful for that relationship, and I'm still blogging for them today.
2: Do you want to mention Um, what what they are and what they do?
3: For sure. So TakeMeFishing.org is the um, online entity and the brand that – They've been set up through the Recreational Boating and Fishing Foundation to help educate and, you know, get more anglers involved in sport fishing and boating. So, um, you know, they've done a really great job of pulling in all the state resources. So if you go to TakeMeFishing.org, they have state-specific information and links to all the regulations. So it's kind of like one place to go to get any type of information you need if you want to get involved in fishing or boating.
2: And licenses. Um, you get all your licenses right there.
3: Absolutely. It's it's awesome because, for example, when I came up there and I knew I wanted to fish with Gabriella, all I had to do was click on the link for Washington, D.C., and it took me right to the appropriate page where I could just buy my license online. So it makes it super easy and of course their blog, there's two other regular bloggers aside from myself, two other gentlemen, Tom Kieran and Andy Wickham, who are fantastic writers. And um, they have guest bloggers from time to time. So there's a variety of different voices that are on that blog and all, you know, all providing information on a wide variety of fishing related topics and you know on different areas across the United States. So it's they're just a super helpful resource plus now they have a places to boat and fish map where there's information that's provided by fish so there's all kinds of data about you know where to fish and which techniques are most productive just a really really helpful resource for somebody who's trying to get involved in fishing and wants to learn more
2: that's awesome yeah you're guiding so you, you blog you guide I guess we can go into the the education and outreach that you do since we talked about take me fishing. When did you decide that educating and getting more, I guess you know, kids and women into it was a thing? I mean, when you started nine years ago, there weren't a whole lot of known women anglers and there's st- Orvis is still battling with the fifty fifty. I just say battling with it, but they're getting a new initiative out to get more women anglers. When did you yeah. see that sort of I don't want to say a niche, but a need for that.
3: I think, you know, I've seen it all the way going back to like 2000, 2001. I, when I first moved to Florida, there there's a lady by the name of Betty Bowman who she started a all-women's school of fishing. She calls it the No Yelling School of Fishing called Ladies Let's Go Fishing. And she, you know, she created this seminar series that basically – you know went from city to city in the state of Florida and taught women different saltwater fishing techniques and you know in person through her seminar series but beyond that you know i saw that women really wanted to connect and and stay and develop that camaraderie and a support system so that you know they could ask each other questions or you know get gain information or plan fishing trips together And there really wasn't any sort of like long term follow up or glue, I guess, to use an analogy to like get us all to stick together afterwards and continue to fish. I mean, I was going to fish regardless because I grew up doing it. But, you know, I came across so many other women who would say they would see my pictures and they'd say, oh, my gosh, I want to go fishing. I really want to go fishing. But they just didn't know how to get started or if they went to a seminar or if they, you know, went on a fishing trip once, there really wasn't a lot of follow-up or a lot of resources out there to retain them and keep them involved. And I know that still is a challenge in our industry today as far as, you know, women are certainly one of the fastest growing demographics in our industry, but As you were saying, and it sounds like which Orvis is finding out, the challenge is retention. So while a lot of women are getting involved, they're finding out that they're not sticking with it beyond, you know, a couple of years. I think, you know, the questions that we need to ask ourselves is, of course, why and what can we do to help that? And I think, you know, the reason I started my blog was to provide that, you know, some form of online support where women could go you know, now they can interact on my Facebook page, on Instagram, on Twitter, ask questions. Plus, I have all the educational information on w- my website and, and interact amongst themselves. And, and like I said, I think it just it makes it easier for them when it's like women talking to other women because they feel they don't feel like. Any question, you know, their questions are going to be you know, analyzed or criticized in any way. I mean, when women are learning, it's kind of like, hey, we're all, we're all in this together. We're all learning at the same time. And I think we're, you know, just by our nature, women are a little bit more detailed when we explain things. And, you know, I, I have been really fortunate to have some fantastic male mentors in my life, but, you know, Sometimes when you're fishing with guys, they can be very, you know, to the point and they don't elaborate a lot. It's just like, oh, well, you just do it like this. <laughs>
2: I'll find a lot of times when I have a couple, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, the guy usually goes off by himself and just starts pounding the water with the flies. And and the, the lady always wants more questions. I'm usually shoulder to shoulder with, with the wife or girlfriend. Explaining things and describing and talking, when the men are just fishing and grunting silently, They're, they've gone into their primordial caveman style of me wave stick get fish, and the <laughs> women definitely want to. They have more questions about how it's done. They don't just want to throw the fly; they want to know it's more about the dynamics of it, the physics, the the ins and outs, the whys. I've just that's something I've always noticed when I'm fishing with. A man and a woman together
3: yeah you know rob i've heard that same thing from you know my friend joe and many other gentlemen in the, in the fly fishing in the fishing industry overall because i think for us it's a process and you know it's kind of like women go to the bathroom in groups and we go to our women's wine nights in groups your bathrooms and are all nicer
2: about, you have Yeah, sofas in there <laughs>
3: I'm telling you, usually there's like some, you know, perfume, little hairspray if you need it anyways. Um, but it's, you know, yeah, for us, it's the overall experience, right? Like I love being out in nature. I love hanging out with my girlfriends. It's like a girl's day out on the water. And of course I want to catch fish because, you know, that's a huge part of it, but it's, it's more than that. Um, and, and I think that. You know, it's just really important for us, you know, getting back to the whole retention and why I started my blog. And I hope that, you know, more people in the industry will will do this as well, it's just, you know, put more resources out there, you know, let let women know. I mean, fly fishing too, in particular, and I don't know if you've experienced this, Rob, but I think a lot of people like there's a certain cache to fly fishing, right? So people think, oh my gosh, I've got to spend five hundred dollars. You know, between $500 to $1,000 on a fly rod. I need to get this, you know, super expensive fly rod because I want to get the best. And, you know, they start really overthinking it and feeling like overwhelmed, feeling like they're not, you know, there's floating line, sinking line. What do I need? How do I go about this? And really, You know, it's just like anything else. We can make it as complicated or as simple as we want, right? So, I mean, you can start out by going somewhere like Bass Pro and getting, you know, a beginner fly fishing setup that's already pre-rigged and pretty much ready to go. And that's just fine for you to start out with. You know, get the feel of it. Take a few lessons. Figure out if it's something that you really are going to enjoy and want to stick with. Because, I mean, you do have to have more patience, let's face it. A lot of people, you know, who are used to fishing with bait, <laughs> really, you know, it's a struggle for them. Because it, it is more about the process and figuring out, you know, how to present that fly. And, and, um, but it, it's also, it also can be a lot simpler and a lot more inexpensive than I think most people realize.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, this can be done on a budget easily.
3: For sure. Yeah. And, and, and I think too, you know, especially down here, one thing that I've noticed about fly fishing, and and I don't know if you've noticed this too, is that, you know, people down here think, oh my gosh, you know, I'm in Florida, I have to go chase these, you know, 130 pound tarpons, or they get it in their head that that's what they want to do is go, you know, fly fishing for tarpon down in the Keys. And that's great. That's an awesome goal. But you know, that's not where you're going to start when you're learning. So the great thing about living here in Florida is the fact that we have some amazing freshwater fisheries, too. So while we have the inshore, you know, saltwater fishing opportunities and the offshore saltwater fishing opportunities We've got amazing freshwater opportunities where you can go out and catch largemouth bass and bluegill and all these different exotic species down in the Everglades, the peacock bass, cichlids, um, and so many of these freshwater species are very willing to take a fly. So for somebody who's just starting out, you don't have to make a 60 to 70 foot cast. You know, if you can get your line out there 20 to 30 feet, you can still catch a fish and experience that success early on. And I think that's really a big part of it is, is letting people feel that sense of accomplishment and that feeling of confidence. And, you know, that's going to continue to encourage them and empower them to feel like it is something that's accessible. It is something that they can do. uh, And they don't have to go out there and, you know, land a 130 pound fish on a fly rod right off the get go.
2: I've been doing this my whole life. I have no interest in getting a hundred and thirty pound fish on the fly. That's too much for me.
3: Yeah. It's I mean, it, you watch it on TV or you know, you see people post pictures and it you know, it can be intimidating if you're just if you're just getting into it. But I mean, as you know, going out to Colorado or um Montana and fishing for trout can be just as rewarding and the scenery is just i mean that's part of it too when you're fly fishing the scenery is just beautiful i was really fortunate to be able to go to New Zealand last fall and and fish there and we pursued the wild brown trout on the South Island out of Owen River Lodge and it was honestly one of the best experiences of my entire life albeit challenging and frustrating but just the scenery, the fishing just completely different from what we do here. I mean, we showed up in our bright, you know, brightly colored Florida Columbia shirts and the fishing guides just looked at us and were like, yeah, no, That's not you gonna
2: guys <laughs> Do <Did laughs> you do the uh, the long underwear under shorts there?
3: um yeah you kind of you needed to because we went in october so that was like this that was basically their spring and like the very early part of their spring so it was it was pretty chilly and the, and of course the water is you know you know i mean that's your when it's you're fishing water. yeah I, you were it was cold
2: <laughs> for sure one day i'll experience it down there my wife's going in april i'm not
3: Oh, I don't get oh man. Yeah, it was, it was truly amazing. I go back in a heartbeat.
2: Before we get into Florida. I mean, I want to ask so many questions about Florida with your business. Are there other businesses that you work with besides take me fishing, booking? Do you use any booking organizations or just talk about sort of your, your guiding operation uh, from booking yeah, clients so- to, I know you've got the boat and the Jeep.
3: Yep. I just started guiding a few months ago. Um, and so I've got a 15 foot tracker topper and to be honest with you, the majority of the time I just fish on the trolling motor because some of the fisheries that I go to, one of my favorite spots here is Babcock Webb wildlife management area. It was the very first wildlife management area here in the state of Florida. And it's just, it's just a stunning place to fish. It's all pine flatwoods, so um, you know you'll be out there fishing, and there'll be deer walking along the shoreline. There's sandhill cranes that will wow. soar overhead, and you know it's not an, it's not known. Webb Lake isn't known for being a trophy bass fishery by any means. It's more about numbers. But when you're taking people out, you know women, kids. And they're experiencing their first time, you know, using or first few times using a fly rod or fishing artificials. It's 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 pretty much, you know, consistent action. And there's a lot of other things that we talk about and that we're looking at as far as, you know, the wildlife as we're fishing. So it's really like the whole combined experience. Um, We've caught crappie. We've caught bluegill. Um, in fact, my friend, Joe Mahler, he guides out of the same lake and he's got a gentleman that goes out with him on a regular base and, um, tenkara fishes. So he, and he does extremely well catching bluegill on a tenkara rod. He has these really tiny spider flies and he basically just dangles them right near the lily pads. And it's, he, he'll catch more bluegill doing that than we will casting poppers for minnow patterns all day long. So, um, yeah, it's just it, it's just a really great spot. And then I take clients down to um, the Golden Gate Canal system, too, which is down closer to the Naples area. And like I was mentioning earlier, there is kind of unique. It's not so much about the scenery um, down there as it is about the fishing opportunities because there's just all the exotics, the peacock bass, which if you've never had a chance to catch on fly, what a rush! They are—they fight a lot like a smallmouth bass. They're very aggressive. You know, I've seen them six to eight pounds, and they're just so colorful. And the unique thing about that species is that Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission brought them into the Miami area in the 1980s to help control the invasive um, tilapia and. Cichlid populations, people were releasing their aquarium fish, which is a big no-no.
2: <laughs> Especially down there where things can thrive.
3: Exactly. The
2: habitat of that warmth all year and food and sunlight.
3: Yeah, wow. for sure. So, I mean, there there were a lot of um, aquarium releases that were doing just that. And so the because the peacock bass is highly predatory and very aggressive, they brought this species into Florida and it ended up turning into a thriving sport, freshwater sport fishery here too. Now, of course, the challenge for us on this coast, they've recently made it over to this area and, you know, the East coast, the Miami area, Fort Lauderdale, the, um, the bass, even when the temperature drops, like we had, you know, a cold snap here last week and, over there, the fish are somewhat um, protected and safe because there is an aquifer called the Biscayne aquifer that stretches throughout most of um, Miami-Dade and Broward counties. So even when the temperature drop, that aquifer keeps the, the water and the freshwater canal systems warmer than it would if it wasn't there, obviously. So we just had that cold snap here and and, you know, the first thing on my mind was, oh, no, our peacock bass. But um, but I th- I don't think it was cold long enough for there to be any issues. I'm sure the fish were sluggish. But, you know, the other part of it is most of the time those fish can go down deep enough to where the water temperature is more stable and kind of ride it out until the temperatures start to rise again. So um, I'll be going down there, you know, tomorrow and this weekend to check out you know, the fishery and how things are going since we've had that cold snap. But so far I think so good.
2: Is there a seasonality to Florida fishing?
3: To Florida freshwater fishing?
2: Yeah. Or do, we, do you do all fresh or fresh and salt guiding?
3: I guide only freshwater.
2: Okay. I guess we can focus on that. Yeah. So is there seasonality or things more active? You know, if there's a cold snap, the peacocks kind of get sluggish and dormant. Um,
3: Yeah, 100%. Do you find that in the spring there's
2: one species versus June, July, August, September?
3: Yeah, in fact, that is probably the best thing about the freshwater fishing opportunities here that we have in terms of being able to find species that you can target and pursue on a year-round basis because, for example, right now, like starting in you know, late December through April, our largemouth bass fishing, the Florida strain largemouth bass. I mean, this is prime time, you know, those fish are starting to spawn and there's a lot of big fish that are heavily feeding. So there's plenty of places to go in the state where you've got a really great opportunity to catch a trophy bass of eight pounds or more. Um, but now is the time. So yeah, if anybody's listening and they're wondering, you know, when is the best time to go to Florida to fish for a largemouth bass now. If you want to go, call me um, and we'll get out there. And um that like I said, that generally goes through April. Well, then when the largemouth bass bite, it, it never really dies down. I mean, you can always catch largemouth bass pretty much any time of year. It's just for the bigger trophy fish, now is the best time to do it. And then as the water starts to warm up in late spring into summer, that's when the peacock bass really turn on. Um, they, being that they're native to the Amazon basin, those fish thrive in the higher water temperatures. You know, eighty degrees, even up towards ninety degrees, they wow. they they love it.
2: That puts so, everything down here.
3: Yeah, yeah, it's but that's it, what it, they're it, used to. Yeah, they evolved so, in that warmth. So, you know, kind of the, the neat thing about it is, is when you take clients out, for example, here during the summer, you can start off fishing for largemouth bass in a lot of the same waterways in the morning, then the peacocks don't necessarily turn on. I mean, they like it in the heat of the day and the bright sunlight. So, you know, they, I mean, noon, that peacock bass bite will start to really turn on and you can fish heavily from, you know, until about Three, four in the afternoon. And then once that sun starts going down, that bite will taper off. So it's really interesting. And like I said, they're just a blast to, to fish for. You can use topwater poppers. You know, they'll pretty much, much chase any minnow pattern. Um, I know a gentleman that fishes for him, Mr. Steve Gibson. He's a kayak guide up towards Sarasota. He comes down this way and he fishes for him. And he actually uses a nymph. So it's, it's interesting. You know, a, a lot of people down here think of bigger fish. I got to use bigger flies, but that's that's not always the case.
2: Any patterns that are kind of local that no one else would know about designed for those fish?
3: For peacock bass, there's, there's a couple. My friend Joe Mahler designed a fly pattern called the Straw Boss. So it has sort of like two tufts, if you will, that come out one from each side of the fly pattern, from each side of the head, and it and it sort of gradually sinks down towards the the bottom portion of the water column. Um so depending on what the fish are doing and how aggressive they are, you know, if you strip it faster or slower, it's going to give it a different action. But he's actually done some really neat demonstrations. We have a Bass Pro Shop not far from us, and they've let him do some demonstrations in the fish tank so you can see the action of the fly and how the fish take interest in it. And and I mean, that's a fly you can use in either freshwater or saltwater, but he specifically designed it when he was peacock bass fishing because he noticed that the peacocks would in certain circumstances, if they weren't feeding really aggressively, they would sort of watch that fly until it got down to a certain point in the water column, and then they would hit it. And if they and if they were sinking too fast, he wasn't getting the bites. He was missing the bite. So this pattern, like I said, they sort of uh, the fly kind of drifts down in the water column a little bit slower,
2: sort of neutrally buoyant.
3: Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Just
2: more time for them to see it. But yeah, does it I mean, do they think it's something in particular? Is there an organism that kind of hangs in the water column like that?
3: It could be, like we you know, dragonflies could be I mean, we've got a lot of dragonflies down here. So that could be that could be it. You know, if it if dragonflies, I mean normally you would think that dragonflies would die and float on top of the water, but I'm sure after a period they they sink or just, you know, different types of minnows, I think. I mean, one of the colors that works really well is um, a chartreuse and an orange, you know, and we've got I know peacock bass specifically are carnivorous. So it also I, I know they do eat each other's young, unfortunately, <laughs> pleasant thought, but um, They do. So, you know, that could be the other thing when you're fishing for peacock bass, that chartreuse and orange really kind of mimics a peacock, you know, a juvenile peacock bass. So I think it could be, you know, probably either one of those two scenarios.
2: Works for me if it it catches fish.
3: It does. It definitely does. Um, The other patterns that work really well, I mean, poppers, topwaters always work, Um, you know, generally... Like a number six, um, and then there's juniors craft fur minnow, which is another pattern that works really well for. You had
2: those up here.
3: Yes, I did. Yep. So they just they've got the bead chain eyes, and then um, you know made with pink and white craft fur,
2: nice but adorable.
3: they they mimic any one of a number of you know, bait fish species that we would have down here in either fresh or salt water. So that's another pattern that works in either circumstance, but for sure works very well in freshwater.
2: And you mentioned lily pads. I'm also assuming you've got a lot of aquatic vegetation. Do you have to have weed guards?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, I know, you you know, there are a lot of different tires who tie, um, weedless flies. They put the weed guards on, um, I know, like, my friend Joe has a trick where he's, when he's tying his fly onto his, you know, tippet material, he just takes a piece of that leader and kind of, like, runs it back through the hook so that it sticks out the bottom, if that makes sense. Just like a small little tag end, which kind of makes it weedless. So, that was a trick that he showed me that's pretty neat. Um, And that way, you don't have to spend all the time, you know, making your fly itself weedless. And then if you, you know, if you go to another area where it's there's not as much vegetation you can always clip that little piece off but yeah i mean that that is something that you definitely have to work around down here there's a lot of vegetation a lot of lily pads a lot of hydrilla um you know depending on the area where you're fishing and the time of year summer there tends to be like the weeds in a lot of our freshwater canal systems and lakes can get pretty thick
2: that have to do with a lot of agricultural runoff there is, cow there, poop.
3: yeah there you know what there is there is definitely some of that for sure you know we've the got a lot of horses. yep yep i would love to say that you know that's not an issue but unfortunately it is which is why you know i mean i'm i'm kind of like my husband laughs at me but i'm like a stickler for using like i use all like eco-friendly detergents and dish soaps and all that stuff because I feel like every little bit helps and it all ends up going back into, you know, our waterways eventually in one form or another. So, but yeah, I mean, down here, there's a lot of, you know, any gated community is definitely treating their lawn with pesticides and fertilizers. And most all of the gated communities and golf course communities have ponds. And most of those ponds are connected and some of them run into you know river systems and things along those lines so something we all need to be aware of
2: is there a rod weight and length that you prefer
3: yeah i mean i i really like i mean generally i'm using a nine foot fly rod which is pretty standard i think but um i like a seven weight or a five weight you know i'm i i I've got, we've got, um, the Estero River is actually right around the corner from where I live. And I, I really like fishing in that area, um, around that river system using my, my five weight, but I always bring my seven weight along with me too, because, you know, you never know what you might see. I mean, when you fish the river systems here and the Estero River is brackish, so there could be snook. In fact, I've seen snook right around 40 inches, you know, I've been fishing for bass you know, on a five weight. And then all of a sudden I see this huge snook cruise by, um, and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I got to grab my other rod. So it definitely helps to keep, you know, more than one, but even a seven weight, that fish would have been a challenge on on a seven weight
2: to see a snook and a bass hanging out together. Yeah. It's,
3: it's, it's really pretty cool. Yeah. Well, got to come down to Florida.
2: I keep trying. My wife keeps saying we're mountain people. I'm like, no, Florida. (laughs) Always trying to get down there. Always.
3: Yeah. There's like just, I mean, way too many fishing opportunities and not enough time. That's the thing. For sure. No, go ahead. What were you going to say?
2: Do you do walking trips at all or is it all boat
3: Yeah, I I can do um, guided shoreline trips. I mean, I I like taking people out in the boat first and foremost, but um, I'll do guided trips from shore as well. I mean, I have guide insurance that covers me in either scenario. And, um, you know, sometimes, to be honest, like with kids, I mean, generally, it's pretty hard unless they're at least, you know, 10 to 12 years old to keep their attention for very long. And, um, you know, there's just... I think for kids, if they're starting out, it's just it's so much easier to get them started off from shore. You know, if they want to take a break or, you know, you you want to point out some wildlife or, you know, they need a snack or they need to use the bathroom. It's just it's a whole lot easier once they have gotten acclimated and accustomed to fishing from shore. You know, then you can transition them to, you know, getting out on the boat for a couple hours. But um, it also depends on how much they've been exposed to it.
2: We do, you know, I'm, again, urban fishing. So we'll we'll walk past this Chipotle all the time. And every time I'm with kids, they want to stop and get a burrito. And I'm amazed at the amount of food that a little kid can put away and then go back out into the summer heat and fish for another two or three hours. But they always have to get food. It's the metabolism. Yeah. They're like little.
3: They're growing. Yeah. They're growing. So it's like you got to figure out, like, what your. Top fishing snacks are, and you'd be amazed at how you can motivate kids too through the right snacks. <laughs>
2: well, I'm are sure you sure?
3: know, having oh, yes. kids,
2: yes, my kid doesn't eat much, she wants candy necklaces right now.
1: <laughs>
2: I'm like, no, I, mean, I know her teeth are going to fall out eventually, anyway, but I'm like, no, <laughs> she did grab a watermelon at the grocery store. I'm like, who eats watermelon in January? That's what she wanted. I can't argue with that. Are hey. you yeah. Are you familiar with the I don't know if he's still around, the land captain? There was a fly fish America in the nineties, and they were just driving around fishing canals out of a Honda Accord.
3: I don't know if I no, I don't think I know like and he like he was based here in Florida?
2: In Florida, and he called himself the land captain and he just had a, a Honda Accord maybe with a canoe on the roof. And they were just driving around from spot to spot, fishing canals and just urban waterways. And he called himself the land captain because he drove a car instead of a boat.
3: That is funny. I, you know, I think that I'm I may be connected with somebody on Facebook. Is his name Steve?
2: I don't know. I don't remember. I just thought of it.
3: Yeah, I think I have heard of I have heard of somebody who who has done something similar.
2: Now, yeah. Be- question about walking on land we've already mentioned gators there's a lot of things in florida that can harm you do you encounter snakes and giant centipedes and other things that want to bite
3: yeah for sure i mean you're going to it's just it's part of you know it's part of fishing down here i mean we live in a warm tropical climate and as much as we'd all love to say oh yeah when we go out we never you know, bump into anything that could potentially be hazardous or harmful, right? But there, I mean, we, you know, we do have gators and we have snakes and there are certain kinds of spiders that you need to be aware of. Fire Um, ants? Fire ants for sure. And trust me, I have had my fair share of run-ins with those and that is no fun. And that happens to, for whatever reason, it's like, I should know better. Of course, I always have, you know, my Um, I have my fishing shoes, which have vents in them, of course, because so they can drain and somehow those suckers always get in those vents and just, yeah, attack my legs. The secret there, somebody told me is... And here, no one's ever confident with how they say this word, but Worcestershire sauce.
2: Worcestershire? Worcestershire, yeah.
3: Worcestershire. Yeah. Somebody told me, and I actually looked it up online, that if you put that on your Fire Ant Bites, it will take away the the burning and itching, and it does.
2: You got to wonder how Uh, they figure that one out.
3: Yeah. Kind of interesting, right? I'm not really sure. But then there's also a product called After Bite that they sell here in Florida that works too. So. If you don't have the Worcestershire sauce, get the afterbite. Um, but fire ants are definitely, you know, something, of course. And and the one thing that I tell anyone, if you're fishing down here in South Florida, specifically from the shoreline, um, I've got a lot of friends that will drive down to the Everglades along the Tamiami Trail, which is, you know, 41 that goes all the way across over to Miami there's lots of fantastic places along there where you can park and fish and just little canals along the side of the road that'll have juvenile tarpon and peacock bass and cichlids and Oscars. I mean, you can have a blast on a fly rod, but the thing is, is you need to be dressed appropriately. And that means buying yourself a pair of snake boots. Um, and they, you know, they sell them at pretty much any outdoor sporting goods store around here, but it's, it's important because we have pygmy rattlers. We have, You know, we have rattlesnakes, we have cotton mouse, and and there's something that you really do need to be aware of when you're fishing in those types of areas. I mean, obviously, you know, your your state parks and things like that, most of the time, they trim back the grasses and things in those areas, and it's not as much of a concern. But for sure, if you're fishing down in, you know, the, the Naples area or along the Tamiami Trail... Um, on your way over the other coast. It's something you've you've got to have, those snake boots, absolutely. And long sleeves and long pants. I don't care. People will say to me, it blows my mind, Rob. People are always like, how can you fish in Florida in long, sleeve, long sleeves and long pants? And I'm like, no, you don't understand. How can you not?
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm more comfortable outside, completely covered up. And then if we were at a Project Healing Waters event a couple of years ago, it was 102 degrees, and I'm wearing sun gloves, big hat, pants, long sleeves, and then we were done fishing. It was time for lunch. We all changed, and I was hotter and more miserable in shorts and a t-shirt than I was completely covered up.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and I mean, not to mention down here, you know, particularly, it, well, I mean, no matter where you live, right, if you're, if you're fishing and you love the outdoors, you, you got to stay covered. I mean, to protect your skin, no one wants to get skin cancer that's for sure so um but down there's, here in the
2: term Florida tan for a reason
3: yeah yeah
2: those are the all the old women I used to hang out at my grandparents house they'd been down there for 20 30 years and wow they they looked like baseball gloves
3: yeah I mean I always tell people like be careful or you're gonna end up like Magda from something about Mary no kidding yeah, yeah but um, that's what
2: we call my wife's roommate from before uh, she moved in with me. A long time ago, she had this eighty-year-old our roommate, and we always called her Magda.
3: Yeah, wear wear the sunscreen, wear the hat, wear the long sleeves, wear the long pants. It's going to protect you from the sun, from the bugs. Because trust me, I mean, there we do. We have great fishing down here in the summer, but in the summer particularly, whoa! I mean, the mosquitoes. We've got you know, we've got no down here, and if you're dressed right and, you know, you bring some insect repellent or whatever, you're going to be fine. It's not an issue. But, you know, if you go out there in a a tank top and...
2: You're just (laughs) asking for it.
3: Short shorts and flip-flops, no, that's not going to work. Not, you know, not in most of these areas where you're going to catch, you know, some nice fish.
2: So we've talked about the noxious creatures and the dangers. What about the other things that Florida's known for? Do you get... What are the cool birds and butterflies, insects. Do you get to see otters, manatees? I mean, there's just so much wildlife down there.
3: Yeah, definitely. We, yeah, for sure. I mean, there there really is. And that's why I always tell people, you know, particularly the areas where I guide my clients, it's, it's more about the overall experience because of the wildlife. I mean, we've got great blue herons. We've got egrets. We have the roseate spoonbills. We have the sandhill cranes, which to me are just so beautiful and fascinating. And they mate for life, which I'm not sure if you knew that, but they do. I think their lifespan is about 20 years, but they're they're stuck with each other for 20 years. And, um, you know, we have several different species of, of turtles, of course, saltwater and freshwater turtles. And um, we do have otters. In fact, I just saw one last week when I had one of my clients out in the Golden Gate Canal system. Like I said, we've seen iguanas down there. We have um, the osprey, which is a bird of prey. And they're generally found mostly around, um, you know, saltwater areas. But I see them up at Webb Lake where I fish from time to time, too. Um, we have lots of bald eagles down here, which is just really neat to see, too because the population has really come back. I mean, they were, I, think, I don't know if they were in danger, but they were definitely threatened, a threatened species for a while. So it's always nice to see those when you go out. Um, we have, see, what else? Lots of armadillos. <laughs> see those in my front yard.
2: Really? I've never uh, seen an armadillo in the wild.
3: Really? Yeah, we have plenty of those down here in Florida. We have... Um, the Florida panther, of course, down in my area, and they are endangered. Um, so they're they're very well protected by FWC, and there's only certain areas where you know the the um, the landscape is conducive to, I guess, their habitat. So those areas are pretty well protected and guarded and preserved. Um, but there's quite a few areas that are right in between. Naples and Miami, um, that are known for having Florida Panthers. So that's kind of neat. And of course we have the, the, um, black bears down here too, which as you know, more and more development, um, takes place in this area specifically, like where I live, I'm not far from Florida Gulf Coast University and there's a lot of growth in this area. So, you know, with that growth, of course, comes some of these animals that are being displaced and moving to other areas. So people are become more aware of them, but yeah, I mean, there, every time, every time I go out on the water, it's, it's, I'm just amazed. I promised, I promised myself when I first moved down here that I would never, you know, that I would always, that I would never take Florida for granted. And, you know, the fact that I live here for granted, especially when it's below zero in Chicago. Absolutely. In January. So
2: Are there any crazy exotic animals you see, other than the fish?
3: Crazy exotic animals. Well, the iguanas are exotic. Right. Uh, Right. We also have monitor lizards not far from here in Cape Coral, which are not friendly. (laughs) You really have to look out for. Um, And they're trying to eradicate those. Florida fish
2: Talking to one of my neighbors, he was down in Florida during post Hurricane Andrew, and he said they just had or- shoot to kill orders from all the animals that were escaped from the zoos and other places. He said there were just like monkeys just swinging through the trees and coming at them. And it was he just all you could hear all day were just gunshots from oh my. the crazy animals everywhere. Wow.
3: Yeah. I, I, I don't. Don't know about, know about any escaped animals since Irma <laughs> from any of the zoos, but I do know from that Irma? I, I didn't hear about any, I didn't hear about any, I mean, I, it could be a possibility, but, um, I don't think that the, I mean, that storm came on shore, you know, closer to this coast than it did over there. I mean, basically it went right up route 41 here in Southwest Florida, and i did I didn't hear about any escaped animals i'm I'm sure there could have been, but you know the one thing that is a challenge and I know that FWC now has a bounty out on them is the um Burmese pythons
2: yeah I've seen TV shows and read articles about that yeah Those so they the, the deer that's how big they are
3: yeah I mean I mean they're huge, so they do like a python they have a Python like wrangling weekend every year where they, you know, they actually train people to go out there and find them and hunt them and kill them. And then, yeah, now they, they offer, I don't know how much money it is specifically, um, for each Python that's brought in. But then, you know, jumping back to the fish species, we, we've also been working to, eradicate the lionfish too because that's a big problem on our reefs on the east coast Um, and they're starting to come over to this area too so you know the great thing that fwc did last year during lobster season is they for every diver that went out there and you know was spearfishing and or lobstering i should say if they brought back Lionfish, and I don't know how many it had to be. I don't remember all the specifics, but they were able to to bring in extra lobsters if they killed a certain number of lionfish.
2: The lionfish are supposed to taste good, from what I've heard.
3: Yeah, I mean, people make sushi out of them. They, I mean, I've tasted I've tasted a lionfish fillet, and it has to be fillet the right way you need to make sure you you know find somebody that knows what they're doing and fillets it properly because there is um obviously the they have a lot there. of those spines and there is venom yeah but um the meat is really light and flaky um it's very mild tasting so it's you know it's a pretty darn delicious tasting fish you just yeah need to make sure you find somebody that knows what they're doing when they right. it. yeah
2: i'll see Running through most of my questions, yeah, have troubles with the water clarity, with the tannins.
3: You know, Rob, we we do, and we've we've been struggling here lately with, you know, I mean, you probably know or may have heard about Captain's for Clean Water, and the Now or Neverglades Declaration. we we're, we're most of us, you know, in the state, are trying to restore the original flow. Of water south from Lake Okeechobee back into the Everglades, because um, there's been so much development and there's a lot of um, commercial, um, you know, crops that have gone up around the um, southern perimeter of Lake Okeechobee, and that's prevented the flow of water you know, the natural flow of water south, which, you know, to people that aren't familiar with the situation, yeah, maybe that doesn't seem like a big deal. But what happens is during our rainy season, Lake Okotobi starts to, the water levels start to get very high and they have to release the water from the lake. And what they end up doing is releasing it down the Caloosahatchee River and down the St. Lucie River on the east coast, the Caloosahatchee River on this coast. And the high level of, you know, fresh water that comes out, um, you know, on both coasts has created challenges within our estuaries and ecosystems that are not used to having that level of, you know, those high volumes of fresh water Coming into, you know, our our back country estuaries and ecosystems. So in areas where we had, you know, really nice seagrass beds and turtle grass beds, um, that aquatic veget- vegetation is not as prominent as it once was. And, you know, we're, we're seeing some of those seagrasses die off. And of course, you know, that just, it's a domino effect. Once that happens, you know, the um, bait fish, the crustaceans that live and all the other organisms that live in that grass start to find other places to live or, you know, no longer thrive in those areas. And it, it just, it, it creates a really. Um, Sad situation to say the least because the fishing not what it used to be.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this week, you know, they're talking about the offshore drilling, and your governor is Governor Scott adamant. He's like, oh, no offshore drilling, like flat out right there. But with the Okeechobee and the lake flows, and it's probably worse what's going on with that water entering the ocean than what oil drilling would do. And he seems to be more concerned about oil than.
0: Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
3: Neither situation is good, that's for sure. But, you know, I mean, if you talk to, um, you know, most of the gentlemen that are involved, I shouldn't say gentlemen, there's, you know, the anglers, men and women that are involved with Captains for Clean Water, you know, a lot of them have grown up in this area. So they've seen firsthand, just within a relatively short time frame, the ramifications and the, you know, repercussions of, the situation. So, you know, it's, it's really we're grateful that they they started this or nonprofit organization because, you know, it's it's a challenge, as you probably know, too, no matter where you live, to keep up to date with what's going on with the legislation and to know, like, OK, well, when do we really need to make our voices heard on this issue? And, you know, when is there going to be a vote on this issue? When do we need to go up to Tallahassee and you know, represent ourselves and our views and our opinions up there so that, you know, these legislators understand exactly how serious this is. I mean, this area is known for its its tourism. It's like you said, we live in vacation land. We do. People don't come down here, you know, they don't come down here to look at brown water. They come down here to go out on the boat, to fish, you know, to enjoy all, you know, to go to the beach and enjoy everything that Southwest Florida has to offer as a result of being on the Gulf, And, you know, it's, it's, it's a bummer because like you said with the team, I mean, our water changes color. It's not, you know, it's not that sparkling blue that it used to be when all those releases start coming through. Um, you know, so they're they're taking strides. They're you know they're starting to they're making plans. I believe to start building a reservoir um, where they can start you know releasing at least. I mean, it's not going to be able to store all of the water, but at least a portion of it so that it doesn't have to be released. Um, but we really need you know the goal is to get some of that land south of the lake purchased back and and again to restore some of that natural flow the way it used to be because there's actually parts of the Everglades that are in drought because they're not getting that water flow and that's affecting ecosystems down there. Yep.
2: Big fires. Yep. We were in Miami. Oh my, it was like 10 years ago and it was snowing ash the whole time. We had to clean the cars off uh, just from a forest fire, not too far off. The mangroves were all burning.
3: Yeah, and I mean, to some extent, you know, certain times of year in certain places they do prescribe burns just to prevent, um, you know, more serious issues. And part of it is like the natural, um, you know, rebirth of nature process and and all of that. But there, but it is, you know, I mean, there are we have had. In the past couple of years, you know, during our dry season, people don't think and they flick a cigarette out a window and it can create a really, really bad scenario. So, you know, I don't people come down from other states and they don't always realize it. And and we're heading into that time of year now. I mean, right now is our dry season. So for anyone that's visiting Florida, yeah, don't don't be throwing cigarette butts out your window. You shouldn't be littering anyway. Absolutely. But you definitely don't want to start, you know, a life-threatening brush fire either.
2: Right. Uh, I'm trying to think. I've gone through most of my questions. Uh, a couple more. Can you name all the fish species that you target? So for people that want to hire you that might want to be like, oh, you know, I want to go for that one versus another fish. What's, yeah. What species of freshwater fish are available in southwest Florida?
3: So we have the largemouth bass.
2: I'm counting on my, my fingers here. The
3: largemouth, bass. largemouth bass, bluegill, crappie, Mayan cichlids, peacock bass. We have, let's see, we have bowfin. We have what some people call mudfish. Right. Uh, we have oscars. Um, you know, oscars are another exotic species, but they if you want to talk about aggressive and all kinds of fun on a fly rod, especially a five weight, that's an Oscar right there. Oh man, the uh, ones
2: in Hawaii wouldn't eat a darn thing. The ones in the canal.
3: Really?
2: Yeah, they just lived in all the shopping carts the homeless guys throw in the canal. Oh my gosh. There'd be a hundred of them in one shopping cart.
3: <laughs> They're like structure, we're gonna <laughs> hang out here. Woo um Yeah, and I said peacock oh. bass already. Right. Um we have in certain waterways, we have channel catfish, um, and those those are entirely stocked by FWC. But our channel catfish will also take a fly.
2: Oh yeah, they're aggressive.
3: Yeah, and they're they're so fun. I mean, they're hard fighters, so they can they can be a real blast to catch. Um, we have tilapia, which I know some people catch on fly. Um, I mean, those are the big ones.
2: Do you have those cloud knife fish?
3: You know, those, those, those haven't made their way over to this coast yet. On the East Coast, absolutely. There's um, Lake Ida, which is a freshwater lake on the other coast. Um, lake Ida's got them. Some parts of the Everglades have them. I've seen them when we've been out there fishing. But I haven't really seen them in southwest Florida. Yeah, that could change.
2: And then what about but, the ones that the brackish ones that get in there? You already said snook, some baby tarpon.
3: Yeah, oh my gosh, juvenile tarpon. So if you want to catch, if you want to have all kinds of fun on a fly rod, juvenile tarpon are a blast. Just such pretty fish and so acrobatic, and you know, just have you, you know, giggling. They're so fun. So we've got the juvenile tarpon, we've got snook. We actually have a couple different species of snook. So we have the common snook. And then in the Astero River where I fish, we also have a species of snook called the swordspine spine snook, which is a little bit smaller species, but it's dorsal is shaped a little differently, hence the name. So um, we have those two snook species. We have, you know, redfish will come into brackish water areas for sure. Um, let me see. What else am I missing? We already hit the tarpon, um, the jacks. I mean, I don't care who you are. People turn their noses up at jacks.
2: They're crazy jacks strong.
3: Are they are a blast to catch on fly. They are so strong. And some of them in this area, I mean, we get some big ones that will come even into the, you know, estuaries and, and backwater areas. I mean, if you catch, if you hook into a 20-pound a jack on fly, you are in for some fun. I mean, they will, you know, if you're fishing from a kayak, they'll just, they'll circle all around your kayak and um, they're a blast.
2: Every Jack I've caught has always bled really bad. Is that just my experience?
3: Yeah. my. I mean,
2: just mouth be. bleeders.
3: Yeah. Like they be. got
2: hemophilia or something.
3: Well, I think part of it, too, is that they're so aggressive. I mean, when a lot of times when you see them when you're fishing in the backcountry here, you'll see them just boiling up at the surface, like slamming bait at the surface. And whatever they do, you know, there's no subtlety about it. I mean, they are aggressive. So they're just going to slam whatever it is that they're feeding on. They're hitting it with fury. Um, So I think that's part of it. It's like there's no... You know, there's no delicate takes with those fish. It's just like all or nothing. Um, oh, and we also have like one other fish species that I love catching on fly is our Florida gar which is another species a lot of people turn their nose up at. But you know what? I'm equal opportunity angler. I think there's something to appreciate about every single one of the species we have. And gar are a blast. I mean, they're first of all, they're very challenging to hook because they have very bony mouths and they have a lot of teeth. So it's not easy to hook them. And, And secondly, most of the time they're swimming in schools. And, you know, so if you see one or two, generally there's like four or five others behind him. And when they when one of them spots your fly and starts chasing it, the others will start chasing him. And all of a sudden it becomes like this frenzy and they're all trying to get your fly at the same time. So it's just it's 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 a riot. Um, We
2: get them up here late spring, early summer. Yeah, they're they're very aggressive.
3: Yeah. What species do you have up there? Is it
2: long nose? Long
3: nose. Okay. yeah. Yeah. And don't, and
2: don't run like, I mean, the biggest I've hooked was like four feet in the tidal basin. Oh my God. I wasn't gosh. even holding my rod. My rod was in my armpit. It was a 10 foot eight weight. So the tip was way up. I was on the phone and I had probably a popping bug and a, my damsel nymph, which is a size 10 hook. And the angle of the oh rod God. just had the damsel just wiggling on the surface. And this thing came up, bit it. I set the hook was just said, Hey, I'm going to call you back hung up. And, Before I knew it, it was into my backing. I got it halfway back before it threw the hook.
3: Oh, my gosh.
2: And you can imagine the crowd there and all the questions.
3: Oh, of course. Of course.
2: Were you expecting all the questions that day up here?
3: I, I wasn't. I, I mean, I, I you know what? I take that back. I I, I wasn't I didn't really think about it because you think when you're when you're fishing in D.C., when you're fishing around the monuments, I mean, oh, my gosh. You like you caught that bluegill right outside of the Martin MLK. Luther. Yeah. MLK monument. And, you know, you think most people are there looking at the monuments. They're taking in, you know, all the the sites that there are in D.C., you don't really think that they're tuned in to you out there with your fly rod. But yeah, I I was actually, I I was surprised, but you know, we kind of get the same thing down here this time of year with the tourists on the beach. So it's like, if you go to the beach and you're fly casting like Sanibel, there's a few beaches on Sanibel Island here in Southwest Florida where you can go and fly cast for snook. And I mean, it's hard because you've got all these people that are out there shelling you know, and they're out there doing the Bell stoop, picking up seashells. And you're like, oh my goodness. Okay. Like I really need to be careful because they don't see me casting and they're not really paying attention. Um, but then, you know, then eventually they realize you're there and yeah, they'll, they'll stop. And especially if you catch a fish, start asking you a million questions. So yeah, it, it did, it did kind of surprise me in DC because I thought people would be more focused on other things, but it's cool that they're interested.
2: Yeah, I'm always willing to answer their questions. But yeah, like I said, we, we should have just an FAQ we can hand out to them.
3: Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like, all right. Here's a here's a handy dandy printout, or you know, go to my go to my website and shoot me an email, and I'll send you a PDF.
2: I think that's about it for my. Do you ever uh, have run-ins with Florida Man?
3: With Florida Man? No. Yes. Who's Florida Man?
2: You always read in the news, like Florida man, like the guy recently dropped ecstasy and then swam out to some pond that had swan boats.
3: Oh. And the swan
2: boats were the only ones that would listen to him. That's what he told the cops. They were nice to him.
3: Just, yeah, it, the news
2: always starts with Florida man, comma.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. I, I have heard that. It's because, you know, people always say to me, people from the Midwest, they're like, yeah. So tell me what it's really like living down there because, you know, we, based on what we've heard, all the nuts roll downhill and Florida's pretty much at the end of the hill, right? So, um,
2: all nuts roll downhill. I've not heard that one.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, you see some interesting things sometimes for sure. I'm trying to think of, you know, one of the the latest and greatest that I've seen, but, Nothing's to come. Nothing's coming to mind at the moment. I can tell you one thing's for sure. If you go to any boat ramp in the state of Florida on a weekend, on a holiday weekend, I might add, you can run some video, you know, take some video footage with your phone and be highly entertained or just basically sit in the parking lot with some popcorn and a large Coke and you're good. Better than a movie.
2: (laughs) That sounds fun. I like people watching. We were yeah. pe- people watching in Manhattan, uh, I guess, two years ago now. Uh, Josh, I forget his name. He was in the movie SWAT. He was in Dead Poets Society. He walks by us. And then I turn around, and there's a guy just throwing knives into a tree in Washington Square Park. Oh, to my. Practice. And if he had missed, he would have hit somebody. We We go to Manhattan, and we just sit down and just people watch. It's fascinating.
3: Yeah. So, have you ever fished in Central Park?
2: Yes, uh, for bluegill and largemouth, and sightcast to a couple of carp. But I had my Tenkara rod, so I wasn't that successful okay. getting the carp. I couldn't get to them. But yeah, I bring my uh, I bring my Tenkara rod. We're going up in March, but I think it might be probably too cold to fish the ponds. Yeah, we stay about three blocks south of Central Park on Fifth Avenue.
3: Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard there's some big bass in those ponds in Central Park.
2: There were baby raccoons washing their hands in the water next to us. Just all sorts of wildlife. And then I got assaulted by an old woman up there. She told me to get the F out of her way, and she pushed me.
3: Oh, my. Yeah. Well, Gabriella and I told you the story about the squirrel encounter that we had right before we bumped into you, right? When we were in D.C. fishing the Tidal Basin.
2: Did it crawl up on somebody? Oh, we, they'll, were sitting they'll do that.
3: There, we were sitting there eating our sandwiches. I mean, Gabriella was so kind enough to, like, you know, make make me a sandwich. And she had an apple and brought along this, you know, really nice lunch that she had prepared. So we sit down on the bench right before you came up to meet us. And this squirrel literally, like, no fear whatsoever, just Prances right up to us, pretty much like sits down on the bench next to us and puts out his paw, like, like f- fork it over, up. ladies.
2: <laughs> I see them go through the garbage cans there. They will take everything out and just throw it on the ground just to get whatever junk is in there. They make yeah. a mess. Oh, There's a guy I- near the White House. I don't know if he's still there, but he used to wear this old wool sweater and feed them, feed them peanuts. And he would just have squirrels all over his sweater, on his head, arms. <laughs> oh my gosh. They got sharp nails. You don't want squirrels crawling on you.
3: Yeah, yeah. Not to mention, like I don't. I mean, um, squirrels carry rabies, don't they?
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. all the plague yeah. too. And you know the out of towners because they take pictures of them because they don't have eastern gray squirrels.
3: Yeah. Oh, places. aren't these cute? Meanwhile, we're all like, no. <laughs> you no,
2: know, destroying bird feeders, and I just sold my old car and we opened up the hood and there was a whole bunch of walnuts in there. It's so like you gotta be kidding me with these little things.
3: <laughs> they were they were storing, stashing them for the winter. Yeah. In your car.
2: Surprise my neighbor. He tries to shoot them all. Surprise uh they were still only left.
3: Oh my. Well, at least he wasn't throwing knives at them. No. <laughs>
2: no, one of my neighbors, Army Ranger, he was uh he was gonna teach me to throw knives one night after a couple drinks. And we we're gonna use oh, the shed door.
3: That's always a great idea.
2: So we're taking like my hundred and sixty dollar hankles and Wusthof knives from the kitchen, and my wife's like, "Yeah, this is not happening tonight." I'm like, "But he's trained." She's like, "No." So I think we put on like college football or something instead.
3: Yeah, probably a better idea. Yeah. Good thinking.
2: All right. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to talk about with your business and your education and blogging?
3: Um. No, I mean, I know you had touched on it a little bit earlier, just, you know, aside from TakeMeFishing.org, who else I write for and work for. And I mean, I do some freelance articles for a variety of different publications. I've done some work for Florida Game and Fish and Boat U.S. Magazine and USA Today Hunt and Fish. So I do a few freelance articles here and there for other publications. And then, of course, I try to keep up as much as I can with my own blog. So that all keeps me pretty busy. And then you know, the guiding, of course, that is starting to pick up. So that's enough to enough to keep me out of trouble, I think. But, you know, I, I, I guess, Rob, just sort of in closing, the one question that that I'd like to ask and I'd love your input on is, you know, what do you think that we can be doing as an industry to better serve and or support our our female anglers and our youth, our younger anglers, the next generation, in terms of retaining them. I mean, I know that, you know, we've got this R3 initiative right now. Recruit, um, you know, retain, and we're trying to do whatever we can to make sure that people stay involved. I mean, what's your take on what we can be doing better or differently than we're doing now?
2: They just – we're sort of a niche – unless – fly fishing unless you're looking you're not gonna find it. So we're sort of like uh, like an exotic ingredient in the grocery store that unless you're really looking for it you're not gonna find it. you know if you're reading other than you know river runs through it was probably the biggest thing uh, to happen in fly fishing we just need to get it more outreach more out there like when we're out at the tidal basin we're gonna encounter so many people that have no idea about fly fishing. And I think with our club in D.C. having a free fly tying class at events once a month, um, the shows coming up are having all sorts of kid events at them, the one in Virginia this weekend. Just trying to get it out there to people that aren't either going to seek it out themselves or um, they're not inclined to just go pick up a fly rod without a little encouragement. I'm more than happy to just, you know have a couple of TPFR guys, that's Tidal Potomac Fly Rodders, just hang out at the Tidal Basin one day. If someone wants to throw a fly, we'll have rods for them. Um, yeah, it's just exposure, I think. We need to get it. You know, Our biggest exposure was a movie in 1991. There hasn't been much since then. Um, just figure yeah. out a way to, to get more people to see it as something that, you know, what we do here is you can fish anywhere. That's the motto of our club. We don't have to go to Montana. We've got amazing fishing right here in Washington, D.C., and try not to make it as, as intimidating. I tell people that if you can karate chop, you can cast a fly rod. It's the same motion. Your elbow goes up and down. That's it. People, if they pick up a fly rod, they're like, I thought it was gonna be more complicated. Like, well, you, you could make it, like, like you said earlier, you could make it more complicated, but the gist of it is, you're just picking up a stick and throwing a line with a hook on the end of it.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I love it because I think that it's it's so true. And you know, I think that there is, you know, you can get very in-depth. I mean, with any type of fishing, you can get very in-depth and very, you know, um, involved in all the different kinds of equipment. But, you know, I think if people just, you just keep it simple to start and start with the basics and it's really, it's, it's not hard. And I'm sure, you know, that's probably the thing too, is I, I love what you're saying about, you know, having that mindset of you can fish anywhere. Cause I think people just do, they get it in their heads and they think, Oh, but if I really want to catch fish, I have to go, you know, drive an hour or two hours, or I have to have a boat or, you know, I have to, you know, fly to this exotic destination. No, you don't. I mean, and and that's the thing. It's, you know, the great thing about, Um, this, this industry, I think is that there, we are, there are so many people out there. And I think a lot of these events now, like, are you going to the Virginia, um, fly fishing and wine festival that's coming up?
2: That's, uh, the Saturday. So I'll be tying and hanging out and trying to book shad trips.
3: Awesome. Yeah. And I think like events like that are so helpful for people who are just getting into it too, because, you know, you get to meet a lot of people, there's a lot of fly casting demonstrations and, you know, you get to pick up, you know, a rod and try casting it. And there's plenty of resources all in one location for, you know, for people to get business cards and, and network and do that type of thing. But, you know, I mean, the really cool thing is to, is to, and I, I I actually, Joe, my friend, Joe Mahler, and I just spoke to um, a fly fishing club last night up in Charlotte Harbor, which is just a little north of here. And I was telling there was four ladies there out of about, you know, 30 people, four of them were ladies. But, um, I mentioned the fact that what one thing a lot of people don't know is that the IGFA recently separated all of the women's tippet class records from the men's. So, you know, there is an added added incentive for women to get out there and try to pursue some of these records, specifically some of the freshwater records. Some of these species you know women really haven't been submitting any at all and because the record category for women or the record categories for women was separated out relatively recently. I think it was just a couple of years ago um, I believe what the the new they just changed it. It used to be if you caught a fish that was a pound or more, you could submit it. And of course, you have to be a member and, and pay a submission fee. Um, but now I think what they're saying is the fish has to be at least half of the weight of your tippet. So if you're fishing, say, 12-pound tippet, the fish would have to be at least six pounds. I believe that's the that's the requirement and all is on the IGFA website, all of the rules, but what a great opportunity for women to go out there. And it's not about, you know, Oh my gosh, I've got a world record. I think it's about women starting to really pave the way for other women. It's like, you know, one, one woman, woman does it. She learns the process. She shares it with somebody else. And, you know, next thing, you know, it's, it's creating a, you know, a situation where, women are realizing, Hey, I can, I can get out there and do this too. It's not hard. It's not complicated. And, you know, I can achieve some of these, you know, things in the fly fishing world, just like anyone else can. Absolutely. So anyways,
2: are you doing any shows this winter?
3: I am I'm actually I'm headed up to the heartland fly fishing festival and that runs January 20th and 21st at the Boone County 4h fairgrounds in Lebanon Indiana so I'm gonna be doing one session on fly fishing for exotics down here in Florida so I'll cover the peacock bass the Oscars and the Mayan cichlids and then I'm gonna do one um, session actually the first session on Saturday will be about um, you know, getting more women in the sport, retaining people in the sport and how to, how to stick with it. Um, again, just relaying some of my experience about, you know, having somewhat of a support group and finding a a good mentor. And, um, and if you're a spin, a spinning, a spin casting angler, that's used to using a spinning rod, you know, realizing that if you really want to be dedicated to learning how to fly fish, you need to put that rod down and, Seriously commit to it.
2: My friend Rebecca is trying to do this year. Is she? Yeah. She wants more fly, less spin. Yep. She should come down and fish with you.
3: She should. Feel free to share my contact information with her. I'd love if she's down in the area, I'd love to meet her.
2: Yeah. She's always traveling. Uh, yeah. I'd be awesome. right, what about social media? Where can we find you on social media? And I'm glad that as a woman angler who owns a business, you're, just women in general, it's cla- your social media is classy. It's not Baywatch with fly rods.
3: Thank you. <laughs> and
2: and I, we were at a bar one night and my buddies were showing me all these women they follow. And I'm like, yeah, no, man, I'm I'm not, I don't need that. I'm not looking for grip and grins with cleavage and makeup. And if the glasses aren't even polarized and they're holding that fish, I have questions to begin with about the whole thing.
3: Yeah. So, I mean, basically, I agree 100 percent, because I think that as women, if we want to be taken seriously in this sport, we have to show that we are serious about it. And that means, you know, we have a responsibility as anglers to, you know, know what we're talking about. We have a responsibility to understand the issue, the conservation issues that are behind, you know, all the fisheries and areas that we fish we have you know responsibility to yeah to have a a decent grasp on how to be able to you know do whatever it takes from you know putting the hook on our line or the lure on our line to you know, re-spooling our reel if we need to, or, you know, launching a boat. It's not just, hey, I'm going out on a boat and somebody else is going to catch a fish and I'm going to hold it and smile pretty for the camera. No, that's not what it's about. You know, it's, it's, it's about, it it should be no different than any other type of sport. And to be taken seriously, no matter who you are, male or female, that's not the issue. It's what is your skill level? What is your ability level? And do you have a, you know, a good base of knowledge about the sport and about the industry? And, you know, I think that, a lot of companies um, and brands early on just got, you know, they kind of jumped on the bandwagon. They saw that a lot of these female anglers were gaining a high number of followers because there was a certain demographic that wanted to see, you know, scantily clad women holding fish. But I, I think that, you know, the right there's there's certain fits to be made, and I think that, you know, there are Brands who realize the value and the importance of having somebody speak on behalf of their brand that actually understands truly what the sport is about, that understands, you know, how to use all the different, you know, rods, reels, tools, that knows a lot about all the gear that, you know, maybe yeah, that has a boat that knows a little bit about electronics. I mean, you don't necessarily need to have a boat, but you understand what I'm saying. I mean, the fact is, is I'm sorry, if you go out there and you hold a fish, that does not an angler make. (laughs) So, you know, we, we just need to, women need to really empower themselves and it really bums me out. You know, I guess one of the, the final thoughts on my part is, it really bums me out because I see women and I hear women all the time saying, Well, I see your pictures and I want to go fishing. Okay, so go. What's stopping you? What's stopping you? Well, I, I I need somebody to take me. No, actually, you don't need somebody to take you because we do have the resources out there now. I mean, shoot, you know, from the the flight, you know, from the fishing seminars and the festivals.
2: Or to one on Saturdays, to, free classes?
3: Absolutely. From the fly tying classes, from, you know, people such as yourself to, um, you know, YouTube. If you want to know how to, you know, tie a clouser, you can YouTube it. And you can, you know, find somebody that you know. I'm sure they're going to let you borrow their vice. If you live in Southwest Florida, call me. I've got an extra vice. I'm more than happy to lend it to you. Um, you know, or if it just me, I mean, just get out the wa- get out there on the water and try it. You know, the bottom line is, is we we have to start empowering ourselves, and we've got the resources to do it. And you know, I sell shirts on my website that say "Shut Up and Fish," and a lot of times people are like, "Well, what does that mean?" Like "Shut Up and Fish," and I know there's like some other companies and brands that have used it before, but the reason that I have that on the back of my shirts is because. That really is what it's about. We need to stop making excuses and we need to shut up and fish and just get out there and do it. You know, you can sit there and, oh, I wish I was fishing. I want to go fishing. You know what? If you really want to, you're going to get out there and do it. And you're going to look up the resources. You're going to do what it takes. You're going to go to places like takemefishing.org. You're going to get your license and, and get on it and make it happen because you can.
2: Amen. Absolutely.
3: So... That's my two cents. Actually, that's probably more like a dollar, but <laughs> you get the yeah. idea.
2: Yeah. All right, well, I think I've taken up enough of your time and you probably got to go get ready for clients.
3: I do. I got to get ready for tomorrow and this weekend for sure. So looking forward to getting out there and finding some bass.
2: Hopefully Fantastic. some big ones. Well, yeah. We'll be checking online to see how you do
3: yeah well rob thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it and it was great to meet you when i was in dc so hopefully next time i'm up there we can connect again and hopefully get a little bit more fishing in um but no really thanks for your time and thanks for having me and we'll be in touch for
2: sure sounds good thanks so much
3: take care care. Bye bye
1: thank you for joining us for the fly fishing consultant podcast For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.
0: search for the one they call king but who will take his throne tune in to waypoint tv's battle for silver saturday may 18th from 12 to 6 p.m eastern presented by abyss battery waypoint tv through the blackwater bayous
1: and in the dark louisiana night floats a duck camp alive with the sounds of swamp pop and the smells of cajun cooking Four.